from Coimbra to Colombia, from Morocco to Miami. We tell the stories of the people who make the world of international law and business turn. We give glimpses into their lives and provide insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry around the globe. Simply put, without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law and dispute resolution. Now, listeners, this week is a big week for Team TOT. Not only do we have an action-packed episode for you today, we also officially announced a new feature that we are going to be adding to the show. We have teamed up with the London Very Young Arbitration Practitioners and Juice Mundy to present to you conversations with the authors that are featured in their blog series, and we will discuss and examine cutting-edge hot topics in international arbitration. The conversation will be featured once a month after Disputes Digest. Now, the interviews are shorter than our normal conversations, clocking in at about 15 minutes or so. And in addition to being educational, they're also a fun look at the people behind the pieces. Going from there, let's jump into this week's episode. This week's guest is the former Secretary General of an arbitral institution, has a deep passion for the environment and climate change related issues, and also just founded her own legal consulting firm, Climate Change Council. I'm speaking, of course, of Annette Magnuson. During our conversation, Annette discusses balancing multiple professional interests, launching and building new ventures, and a host of other topics. There is a ton to glean from this conversation, and I think you'll enjoy it. So, sit back and enjoy my conversation with Annette Magnuson, and we'll see you on the other side of the show. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. With me today, we've got a very special guest, Miss Annette Magnuson. She is the former Secretary General of the Arbitration Institute at the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce, a co-founder of the law firm Climate Change Council, and a vocal advocate for climate change issues and making the practice of international dispute resolution more green. Annette. Welcome to TOT. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. And we're glad to have you here, too. So, Annette, like we like to start all of our conversations here on the, on the show, the questions that we ask everyone, who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? Well, thank you, Chris. Well, I think you have told the audience who I am in terms of the the audience for this podcast, I think, for that purpose. I am the co-founder of Climate Change Council, and I have been in international arbitration for more than 20 years, and most recently as the Secretary General at the Arbitration Institute of the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce. Uh, So that's sort of my professional background. Uh, I'm Swedish. I reside in Stockholm. I have been 
um, living in Sweden for most of my life. Um, and I think in an international arbitration context, that makes me sort of an outlier. I do find that most people that I encounter with, they have been living in other countries, they are trained in different jurisdictions, and they or they have partners from other jurisdictions or countries. So uh, I tend to be sort of very focused in Sweden, but I, I have very much enjoyed and I am enjoying with this international outlook that my career has uh, made it a privilege for me to be to be part of so yeah I'm, but I'm, I'm based here in Stockholm so that's who I am okay well so then let's uh let's go back to the, the beginning the origin stories a little bit where in Sweden are you from well um if you want to get sort of back go way back I have been in Stockholm for 30 some years uh but before that I'm 50 50 west coast or midwest uh, Sweden okay very interesting and um and you went to to college and law school in Sweden as well if you look at my CV, it's a bit um, back and forth. <laughs> I went to law sure. school here in Stockholm. Uh, and before that, I took a BA in the University of Gothenburg. Uh, I had many different ideas of where I wanted to go with my career when I started out. I started out wanting to be a teacher, and then I wanted to be a journalist. And then, you know, as I, I got gained different experiences, I decided, no, law is where I really want to sort of focus my time. Uh, both from studying and both from different work experience that I had had. So, and then I ended up in Stockholm University uh, and into international arbitration after that. Sure, very interesting. So you mentioned a couple of uh, interesting uh, alternative career paths, either being a teacher or, or a journalist. I mean, perhaps you're the one that should be doing the interview here. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, tell me about that. I mean, what, what was your interest? Yeah, where, where, did the, where did those interests come from? I think if you look at what I have been doing, even as a lawyer, I have combined many of those interests that drove me first into thinking teaching and then to thinking journalism in terms of writing. I have had the fortune to be able to combine that in what I have done as a lawyer uh, in terms of communicating, in terms of both in when I have been speaking with people and doing trainings um, and as secretary, secretary general, of course, that was a big part of my job, being out there talking about international arbitration and Swedish arbitration, both in Sweden and elsewhere. So you could say that is that is sort of the DNA of, of me wanting to teach. Um, I, I got an outlet for that. But also writing. Law is a lot about writing. A lot is a lot about sort of reporting your findings. Um, and, uh, and another element that I truly enjoy where I think uh, another side of my interest and the law really uh, work well together is I, I love history. So my first degree from the university is a history degree. Um, I love going to an archive and, you know, being the first person to dig out a file that no one has looked in for 50 years and, you know, blowing the dust off the covers and discovering something. And I do think that that is the same nerdy, I want to call it, um, sensation that you can have when you do legal research right you look for support for your arguments and you dig through the files and the books or what have you and then you find that little thing that where you can sort of hang up your argument and it's the same kind of um, um exploring um a nerve that you have within you i guess um so it all comes together um in practicing law in the way i have been fortunate enough to be able to do it very fascinating and i think that that's true i mean what more is is litigating a case but understanding and really digging into the history of the scenario right um exactly and you have to be curious 
Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly well said. Um, was there any particular specialty in the realm of history or was it sort of a, a more generalized uh, sort of interest or field? Well, when you study history at Swedish universities, you start out with a very general view and then you sort of narrow down depending on your interest. So I, I, I started very broadly. And then um, as it turned out, I focused a lot of um, my time on Russian history. So you okay. can see there was a some sort of a common denominator because then, then of course I ended up working with international arbitration where Swedish international arbitration has a very strong tie to uh, to uh, the former Soviet Union and Russia. So this has been sort of a the way the way things work out in life, I guess. Sure. Yeah. No, that, that that's really neat, really interesting. So so you kind of talked about how the, some of the components of the practice of law are some of the the DNA or, or building blocks as to why you went into it. But was there a sort of um, a flashpoint or specific reason that kind of hooked you into the practice of law? Or, or you know, what was the moment that you decided you wanted to 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 go to law school and become a lawyer? So I had been working for a few years at uh, at an NGO doing international youth exchange. That was after my first degree when I had with my BA and and all that. And um, so I've been doing that for a few years and I sort of, you know, I was I was ready to do something new. And I had met a lot of lawyers in that role in, with that NGO. And it just seemed to me that law was a very, I don't know what the best way to put it would be, but, but it was a very nice way to use your head. You know, it was a challenging <laughs> way to use your mind, solve problems. And it just fascinated me. So I thought, OK, I'll do that. So that's when I decided to go to law school. Um, and then it was, it's so funny when I think about it now, because I felt so old. I felt so old when I started law school and I thought, oh, I'm so old. I have to hurry. I have to hurry to get out of here because I'm getting so old. When you think about it now and, you know, um, it's fascinating. Uh, it's sort of cute, I, I suppose is the word. So that's, that's what's triggered me. It's having had that work experience at the NGO and, you know, having met lawyers and, you know, um, getting an insight into what they were doing. Um, that that's what motivated me. Sure. And then the sort of next, I think, obvious question becomes, what was it that led you into this topsy-turvy world of international dispute resolution and arbitration? The way many things happen in life, it's just coincidence. Many of the things that are quite decisive for all of us, I find, are not planned. They just happen. You just need to be open to them when they happen. So as I was getting ready to graduate. Um, I went out one evening for a drink with some friends and a friend of a friend was working at this, at this one place. Um, and she was taking a leave of absence because she was going to Mexico for seven months. So they needed someone to take her place for um, seven months where she was currently working. And, you know, I was there and I was um, just about to graduate. So I sent them my CV and there you have it. Um, I, I joined then the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce um, for, for that time. And then I stayed there for several years before I went into private practice. And then I came back as a secretary general. So that's how it happened. That is one heck of a return. Um, and before we talk about you know, your, your tenure as a secretary general, um, you mentioned you went to private practice. Um, what type of work were you doing? Um, was it international arbitration work? And, and if so, what, uh, what, I guess, industry? So I was with Baker McKenzie and then I was in Mannheim and Swartling, um, the, the two law firms. 
And in both firms, I did international arbitration uh, and domestic arbitration, but I also did uh, knowledge management and practice development. I've always had this, like I said, you know, you combine this uh, big picture kind of thinking into the in the practicalities of your daily work. So I've always had roles where it's about developing the practice in combination with doing client work when I was in private practice. Uh, and I really enjoy that. Um, I like to sort of build organizations and and someone called me the sort of the big picture kind of person. I suppose that's the mindset that I take with me when I go into a new role. Uh, so that's, that's what I have been able to do also at the law firms, which has been really, really um, inspiring uh, and a lot of fun. In addition to sort of sitting with these concrete issues and problems like we talked about before, right? You know, digging down and, and, and doing the research and uh, carving out the legal arguments. So, so yeah, so let's, let's not bury the lead here. Um, you know, you spent a substantial amount of time at the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce, you know, well over a decade or so. Um, and in fact, as you mentioned, we're the Secretary General there. Um, what impact do you think the organization and the role itself had on your, your professional outlook? I guess, especially as we talk and think about um, your sort of interest as a journalist, um, as a as a teacher, and then ultimately a lawyer. Do you mean what what impact the the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce and the SSC had on me on my outlook? Uh, is that yes. the question? Yeah. I think what really really attracted me, and has always attracted me with the uh, with the Arbitration Institute and that kind of organization is that you. It's an important activity and it's an important organization for society at large. So it's an important component into how we organize ourselves and how we build our societies. And at the Arbitration Institute, it's about making sure that whenever there is a dispute, that that can be resolved as smoothly and efficiently as possible. But also recognizing that dispute is a natural part, if you like, of doing business. Obviously, we do not want them to be too many, but we also have to recognize the fact, giving a, um, a fair number of or size of, of affairs or contracts, there will be disputes. Uh, there, that's just human nature. There will be misunderstandings or what have you. So you will have disputes. So it's it's a natural element of doing business or or economic development. And when those occur, you need to have a, a smooth way of resolving them. And that that's why arbitration institutes are so important to making this whole machinery sort of, so to speak, work. So I think this being part of this bigger picture for societal positive development, that's been important for me. That's been an inspiration for me. That has been a sort of a guiding light for the initiatives that I have taken and the things that I have wanted to do in my capacity as Secretary General to make the most out of that and to see how we can strengthen that role. and with in, in in doing so being even important even more important contribution to societal good um from an economic standpoint from economic growth and and international trade and and so forth um and and if you have seen the film that we made for the the SSC centennial the quiet triumph you will see that we also think it's important to tie the importance of economic development and the role played by international arbitration in that development Two, um, stable and peaceful relations among nations. It, it also, it also, it all ties into one another, so to speak. And for me to, again, to be part of an organization where 
where this is embedded in the DNA of the organization to hold that role has been important and truly inspirational for me personally. No, sure. That, that, that's a really fascinating um, way, that, way that it sounds like it has sort of touched your, um, your professional outlook. Um, and in this, I guess, sort of follow-up to that, I think is sort of related. Were there any particular lessons or maybe just things that you take with you as you, I guess you've moved on to that role and that's something we'll talk about a little bit later. Personal experience, I think I learned about myself that I need to be in that kind of that kind of context where I do see that whatever I do during my working hours in a day is something that contributes to societal good. That's something that I, is important for me and, and I think has always been important. And uh, in addition to that, to have the fortune and the privilege to be able to work with people from all over the world is just absolutely fascinating. And I'm so grateful for having had the chance to do that and for continue having the chance to do that. And as I have moved into this new role and what we have learned this past year, that there are no boundaries because we can all work together anyway. We have sort of become so used to sitting in front of the screen and collaborating with people from all over the globe and not even thinking about the fact that someone is sitting at the other side of the planet, that is really, really, um, uh, yeah, it, it's fortunate and it's, it's a privilege to be able to do it. Uh, and I'm very grateful for that. And I also think if we're talking personal experiences, I, I cannot tell you how many times I've sat around tables and had dinners with people and we come from different walks of life and we, we grew up very differently and we come from very different cultures and in the end, we are so similar, you know, we are people and we have families and we have worries and we have and we laugh at the same things and we share and we support one another. And that has also continued as I have moved into this new, new role with, um, with the friends that I have gained uh, during this uh, tenure as secretary general. And I think that is very, very encouraging that we may look different and we may have, you know, we may be sitting in different uh, realities on a daily basis, but in the end, we're just people. You know, we want the same things, and we and we we value the same things, and we appreciate the same things, which is great. You know, I love it, <laughs> and it's yeah. I feel a great gratitude for that to have to you know to have that experience. Sure, no, I, I think that's that, that's well said, um, and you know how people might define or maybe even perceive some of those things might change from person to person. But you're right, you know, people want to be safe. They want their loved ones to be safe and they want an opportunity to live a good, safe life. I mean, I think that's um, I think that's true no matter what continent around the globe you might find yourself in. And I do think as the pandemic really took off about a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago and everywhere across the world. And it was just fascinating and very, very warming how everyone reached out to one another and asked, how are you? Not how's work going? How are you coping along with the business? You know, that was the second question. The first question was always, how are you? How is your family? That tells you a lot. And I, it's important um, that we don't forget that that's what's most important, that that's how we care about each other. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, people will roast me for this because if you exchange emails with me, whether it's professionally or, you know, on side project things, you know, and a lot of people will do this too, but without fail, um, especially if we don't know each other, I always start with, hi, I hope you are well. 
and, and it just became that much more impactful. Like, I mean, it's not just a filler sort of sentence. Like, I, I really do hope that the person on the other side of the world in the middle of this pandemic is okay. Exactly, exactly. That was, it, it added an important layer in all the conversations, for sure. Um, one of the things that you mentioned uh, just a couple of minutes ago, um, this is one of the last things we'll talk about with as, as regards to the Chamber of Commerce is, um, the hours of the day and what your day looks like. Um, what does the day in the life of the Secretary General look like? There is no day that is sort of a typical day, I think, for a Secretary General at an arbitral institution. And I think my former colleagues at the arbitral institutions would agree with that. Um, as with any organization where you are very much depending on what happens in the world around you. So, but it's but sort of on a very generic level it's about um handling the day-to-day -day management of what goes on in the cases in parallel to doing long-term projects and long-term initiatives so you're doing sort of long-term short-term at the same time now what happens in the cases uh, at the sec to a large extent is very ably handled by the legal counsel and by the deputy secretary general who's really the operational uh, of a chief of operating officer. Uh, but there are, of course, issues that needs to be discussed with the secretary general. So that may well happen. But then it is the secretary general's role to be very much looking into sort of the long term projects and and of course, being out there talking about what happens in Stockholm and uh, um, sharing experiences from Stockholm at different events and so forth. So it's really um, it's really a very large mix, I would say, of um, um, the, the long term and the and the immediate um, issues. Okay, no, that, that, that's fair enough, and I imagine that's exactly right. Is that you have so such a diversity of things and issues that might come across your desk that, that no two days are probably ever the same. That's true, and again, you never know what's going to end up in your inbox, right? But I think that's true for many of us, many in our in our profession that. Um, it could be, um, you think the day will look one way and then of course you get two emails and then it's completely different. Yeah. Um, you know, as I guess sort of transitory period between what you were doing and what you're doing now, um, you decided to leave the Chamber of Commerce in the midst of this global pandemic that we have been discussing. What was that experience like um, and how did you feel about moving on? Well, you have to remember the pandemic had been with us for close to, well, almost a year when, or maybe exactly a year when I left. Um, so I decided to leave at the end of the year. And then we had had um, nine or 10 months where we had really um, established good routines to working during the pandemic. We were working remotely. We had sort of all these new ways of doing what we usually do, which was not that hard in the sense when it comes to the the tools we had been working with an elect electronic case filing system and uh, for, for quite some time we had just released the SSC platform so we were well placed to work remotely from day one to be honest but of course what is important is that you still have a sense of a team right so that you can keep the team together and get the, those routines in place um, with daily meetings uh, and and so forth and we had we had um, developed a lot of uh, online seminars, and we had really done a lot of things to um, meet the pandemic 
both in terms from the institutional perspective, but also to support the parties and the arbitrators in our cases. So when I decided that it was now time for me to um, do something new, we were pretty much a routine, as much as you can get into a routine when it comes to a pandemic, right? You know, there is always unexpected things. Um, but you're right, it would not have been a good time to take this decision a year ago in April 2020. It would not have been a good time. I mean, obviously, that would not have been very responsible or even possible from my side. But I felt very comfortable that the SEC is in very good hands, uh, very, very good team. Uh, and uh, Kristen Campbell-Wilson, who is now the acting secretary general, who is the deputy secretary general, um, very experienced. I feel very confident uh, that uh, it's a very safe pair of hands. Um, so um, that made me also support myself in that decision that I was able to now make this transition. Yeah, she's got a good last name, you know, Campbell and all that. <laughs> there you have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, that's that's I, I think um, sort of a profound point that that by the time that you made the decision, as you said, um, you know, fortunately it wasn't in the peak of the pandemic, um, uh, but but still, no less. I mean, that's still a great deal of uncertainty um, as to how things were going to happen next. So even during your tenure as Secretary General, and um, and especially now, and uh, we're kind of building up to it. Um, one of the major defining practice areas um, or hallmarks of your career has been uh, climate change and environmental impact um, and topics related to that. I mean, you know, a quick Google search of you with any of those terms will bring back a bunch of uh, things related to that. Um, can you tell us some about or help us understand what drew you to this topic in the first place? Um, yeah, just what drew, drew you to this topic? I think there were a number of factors that sort of fed into the point where I'm in right now, uh, but also even to sort of focusing on that in my role as Secretary General. Um, I, I started looking at the role for international arbitration in terms of international environmental law a long time ago. I mean, I, I think it started with an article I read at one point in, in, in resolving um, environmental disputes and, and coming from, to some extent, the frustration that there is no really strong enforcement mechanisms available if you look at international environmental law. Um, that's in, in that universe, um, enforcement is really absent the way we know it from international arbitration and, and other areas of international law that we might be more familiar with, for example, international investment law. So that was one of the starting points, exploring how international arbitration could play a role there. Um, and then, of course, I think as the discussions on ISDS and the critique against ISDS uh, escalated, one of the strands or of that debate or critique came from the environmental movement. And one of the arguments or one of the being sort of raised against ISDS uh, in that, um, from that group or from that um, uh, side was that it was um, it was deemed as negative the fact that the governments were bound by the international investment treaty so so if they wanted it was perceived as if the government wanted to make a change of policy they were bound by these treaties and they could not do what they wanted so to speak I mean that's simplifying the discussion obviously a lot but but in essence the argument or the critique being that the governments were bound by these treaties that they were binding on the on the 
uh, on the governments. And it just struck me that it was interesting that these voices that were crit that were critical towards the fact that these treaties were binding, the same voices in another sphere of international law, the international environmental law, they were critical that the treaties were not binding because there you can sign up to something, but if you decide then to do something different, there's no really remedy. So that struck me as a bit frustrating. Um, and of course, I felt very strongly that international arbitration is just a tool. It was not fair, if you want to call it that, to, to formulate this critique, critique against the tool of international arbitration to enforce obligations. What we should be talking about is the obligations if, if this entire system is perceived as being a problem for states or for the environment or what have you. So we should be talking about the substantive terms in the treaties because um, the tool, the, 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 the procedural tool is just there to enforce whatever the governments have agreed. Um, so that's sort of, you know, that built into the picture. Um, and then I started to listen into and attend a lot of meetings and conferences where we talked about the climate change and the importance of business, the importance of investments. And of course, in those conversations, it was very important from the business side that um, you would have long-term transparent policies that you could you feel you could trust, that you feel confident that you could go into new markets or that you can make these large investments that are needed, for example, when it comes to um, societal transition for the purpose of climate change. These are, could be infrastructure, could be energy systems or what have you, but they are long term. You need stability. So the capital appeared to be there, but there was not uh, there was uncertainty about the stability of the policies. So all of this combined together made us think we should try to contribute. And that's what ended up with the Stockholm Treaty Lab, which was sort of the big climate change related initiative that we undertook during my time as the Secretary General. Um, so that just started it. And then, you know, from that, you know, you have a lot of spin-offs. You, you, uh, you explore how international arbitration can make a difference. You get involved in other conversations when it comes to international law and the development of international law. And one general experience that I had was that, and this is not unique for our field, but I do think our society at large needs to learn more to have people shift between the silos, right? We need to listen to people from other specialties and we need to learn and we need to have more multidisciplinary collaborations uh, because that's where we can find solutions, including within law. Um, but also when it comes to climate change, I think both from a technical side of things, but also when it comes to from policy to see where um, we can learn from our respective uh, specialties and then move things forward. And I do find, I thought it was fascinating at times when I would attend these conferences where you would have very experienced policy specialists within, for example, the UN system or what have you, and they would talk about renewable energy and the importance of investments in renewable energy. And when we would sit down and talk, there was absolutely no awareness of knowledge at all about we, what we have learned and seen from, for example, in international investment law and what all the things that have happened around renew, renewable energy in that sphere. And I do think, not passing in a judgment, but I do think if you have if you have these two parallel developments, they need to talk to one another, right? So I think all of this combined together just leads me to think that I would like to spend full time in focusing on how to use the law to 
accelerate climate change ambitions further. And one of the elements in that being to cross-fertilize different expertise and being in that crossroads, if you like, between climate change experts and the legal experts and being in between there and see if you can make connections and make things move faster. That was a long answer to your question. <laughs> no, but it was a good one. Um, and it just, you know, with all of that in mind, I wonder, do you think that all of that said, that our field is at least trending in the right direction with regard to mitigating climate change and actually taking the sorts of actions that will actually have meaningful change? Or do you kind of think that it's all kind of just showmanship? Or maybe something my, in between? My impression is that, and it could be because I have moved into this no, new role, right? So suddenly it all becomes before me to a larger extent than it did before. But my impression is that there is really, really a large increase currently in our profession when it comes to focus on climate change related issues. And when I say our profession, I mean not only uh, international dispute resolution specialists, but sort of the legal profession at large. I find that climate change is really climbing on the agenda on uh, strategic issues to take into account for, for example, law firms, which is really good news. And I find that the interest is tremendous. Um, if, if the interest that we have received for what we do at Climate Change Council is any indication, it is a rising interest uh, and the interest is large to learn more of um, what is the intersection of climate change uh, and the law, what does it look like and uh, what can lawyers do and what are lawyers doing and how can the law contribute going forward? What what, what are the initiatives being taken? And, and there are many initiatives being taken. Um, so I do think that um, we we uh, we as lawyers, we as a community, we are really ste stepping up to the plate right now. No, I, I think that's right. I mean, even for, for someone that's in-house like myself, um, in a field that maybe has not been traditionally seen as the most uh, climate change friendly, we'll, we'll call it that way, um, there's been a bit, huge push um, that you've seen that coming from, a, from all levels of leadership, that that is, I think, this recognition that maybe the world has been a little bit too slow to <laughs> to react to. And um, it's not just for show. I mean, you know, we respond to people in kind and say, hey, um, we know that traditionally we would send a huge binder of paper. Can we, <laughs> or huge binders, I should say, can we do this digitally? Or do we really need to meet in person? I mean, those are the tangible conversations that are even going on in businesses. Absolutely. And I do think here, of course, we have learned a lot during the past year with the pandemic and we have all gotten used to new routines and that goes for our entire profession. So that's really, like you say, a very tangible um, outcome of this. And then when it comes to sort of the, the, the content of the business and what we're focusing on and, and, um, and the different activities that goes on um, in all, all, across, all across the board in business, I think there we also can, we can be initiated our conversations. And sometimes these conversations might be, might be difficult, uh, but I do think that's, that's when they might be the most important to have, where we really need to see a transition um, in different uh, areas of business. Um, but then again, the lawyers can be part of that conversation and can be drivers and be at the front line really of the, of the climate change transition in the daily work, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, and so you mentioned it uh, a few moments ago, and or at least a few times throughout this conversation. So let's talk about it. Climate Change Council. What is what is that? Can you tell us about what it is and your role and 
and all of the good things going around it. Well, as the, as the name might imply, Climate Change Council, we see us as Council for Climate Change, whatever, you know, whatever shape and form that may take us. So uh, there are three of us. I, uh, I am working. Uh, um, we are three partners uh, in this consultancy. So it's a uh, um, with whom I used to work with at the Stockholm Chamber for Commerce before. And the three of us, Anja Ip and Andrina Kjellgren and myself, we were the ones that were also actively managing, if you like, the Stockholm Treaty Lab initiative at the, at the Chamber. So we, we are used to working together and we share this um, passion for using our skills and as lawyers for climate change uh, mitigation purposes. So that's what we share. And then we have different experiences and backgrounds that we also bring into the practice um, in, in this new venture that we just kicked off two months ago. Um, and uh, it's just fascinating building something from scratch like we're doing now. It's truly, truly inspiring uh, and a lot of fun to do it together with Anja and Andrina. Um, and you could you could see that we're doing it different things, right? So we're doing... Um, one of the categories of, of um, projects that we're working with is, is looking into research and looking into exploring how certain um, legal frameworks are working or are not working for the climate change transition or energy transition for that matter. So uh, conducting studies and there will be um, some more information coming out from that in, within short of, of a large study that we will be starting out shortly. Uh, so that's one of the things we're talking, we're working with. Uh, another area is, of course, mobilizing the lawyers. Uh, we talked about um, how all the lawyers can be part of the solution and sort of in the daily work. So that's that's an area where we f we focus on to um, being a project man manager, if you like, for for that mobilization uh, and working with other organizations and other networks to. Um, to engage lawyers, um, regardless of practice, to be aware of climate change issues and, if possible, embed the climate change perspectives in their daily work. So that's another area. Now, of course, training and um, workshops uh, is also something that we focus on, talk about understanding climate change law, understanding other areas of law that are relevant for climate change mitigation uh, purposes. Um, and um, doing workshops, for for example, for uh, people who may not be lawyers for working in sustainability issues, but needs to understand the climate change law or climate change regulations uh, universe. So being that bridge between the sustainability, climate change related professionals in the with the corporates and, and the lawyers and the legal and the legal machinery, if you like. Uh, so it's really um, it's it's a wide uh, range of uh, issues we're looking at and discussions that we are involved in. Um, and you know, when you start something new that we're doing now, it's it's one of the one of the um, uh, fascinating and fun things is that you know we can do whatever we want. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's like you know if. If we find ourselves in a context where we can put our skills to use and it meets the purpose of why we're here with Climate Change Council, um, we can decide we want to do it. Uh, it's that freedom, what I think we're just now in the exploratory phase, which is just very, very inspiring. Sure. Um, and I guess maybe that goes hand in hand to uh, this next question. Um, why, 
why this route? I mean, what what was it specifically about the formation of the of a consultancy as opposed to maybe a traditional sort of law firm thought process or some other, you know, an NGO or some other type of avenue that you might have been able to you and your colleagues might have been able to take? Why did you guys think this was the best way to go? Well, as you can as you can hear, it's a sort of a wide range of different services that we that we are working in and will be working in, and I'm sure there are issues. Uh, we will be doing in a year from now that we do not yet have on the horizon as we continue to explore uh, both uh, where the need might be and future partners where they might be. So it's that flexibility and not um, and working with the law firms uh, potentially as well, but not being the legal advisor specifically going into uh, a matter uh, in transaction, for example. That would be the law firms, so the lawyer is doing that, and we could then support them if there could be need for research and expertise in certain specific issues relating to our expertise. Uh, so it's to have that wider flexibility, I think. And uh, and for example, when you look at the project management issues that we are looking at, that's where we can use our project management skills more like a traditional consultancy role, like a, a management consultancy role where we could use that experience and that skill, which we really like and really enjoy, um, but in a legal setting. So we, we, we know the, the environment, we know the expertise surrounding us in the project, uh, and we are leading that. May, we might not need that specific expert in that particular project, we're leading the other experts, but I, th I think our, our background and experience makes us well suited to be those project managers. So that's, I think that the flexibility and the and the breadth of things we want to do uh, is explains why we chose this particular um, form for our business, and also to um, specifically work with the corporate side um, to have those conversations with the corporate side is important. Okay, no, I think that that that's fair enough, and I think that's a fascinating sort of endeavor. Um, you know, for as for the average person that's listening to this conversation, you know, the average you know lawyer maybe. Um, that may not be as familiar with climate change issues. Um, what are some things that they can do or be thoughtful of to be more climate change sensitive or cognizant in their day-to-day -day practice? Um, are there any thoughts or tips you might have for that type of person? I think um, if you want to get an understanding of the climate change issues sort of at large, uh, what is the climate change issue and where can they appear or what sort of how can they be uh, relevant in society at large or in your society? I think one thing to do uh, could be to, because many of the media outlets, they have newsletters that you could um, subscribe to, right? And you can, many of them also have, you can tick what, what areas you're interested in. And there are a fair number of them, both national and international, that where you can tick climate or energy related, for example. Uh, so what I would say is that, you know, sign up to a few of those use, use newsletters and say that you're interested in climate issues and, you know, make a routine to read whatever that news outlet, outlet considers is a climate change issue, because that will start giving you an idea uh, what this is sort of encompasses all total, in totality. So that's one of the advice that I would give if you just wanted to learn more and what the conversations are uh, about and where they're happening and who's involved in that. So that's a, the bigger picture kind of uh, advice that I would give. On a personal level, um, we have heard it. Um, um, 
how you should live your, I mean, I'm not an expert on how you should live your personal life to be a perfect climate change citizen by any means. I think we all can do small things, you know, when it comes to um, not using too many resources, you know, be aware that resources are scarce, regardless of what resources there are really, um, of anything. Try to, um, try to recycle, uh, try to be conscious of how you travel um, and, and, um, and how much you travel and what forms of travel you use. And, you know, just be conscious of your carbon uh, emission footprint, if you like. Um, and, um, and we cannot all be perfect. You know, we will all um, have times when we perhaps are not the perfect citizen in that respect, you know, but as long as we all try a little bit, uh, that's better than not trying at all. And just be conscious and choose whatever works for you. Uh, we we cannot all be the same in that respect. Um, yeah, no, I think that that that's absolutely fair. Um, one last question in this sort of uh, on this, these sorts of topics: um, What predictions do you have for the future of international dispute resolution? Um, I guess we can tie it directly to being more uh, green or climate change focused. Um, yeah, I guess just leaving it there. Uh, what what predictions do you have over the next uh, few years that you might think that think that you think might happen in our field? Um, I do think that it would be very surprising if this past year has not changed the way we conduct international arbitration fundamentally in in terms of the practicalities of conducting international arbitration. So the way we have become accustomed to using um, digital tools will remain and only continue to expand. So I think that's something that will happen in the future. And tied with that, potentially um, new technical solutions, new tools for how we resolve disputes. Um, there are other experts that are much better than me on predicting or discussing that. I mean, uh, my former colleague at the SSC, Lise Alm, who is an arbitration tech kind of specialist, she talks about this all the time. So um, I think that that's, that's something we will see just accelerating going forward. Um, when it comes to international dispute resolution and climate change, I think it's inevitable also that we will have an increasing presence of climate change related issues in international disputes because we want to see increasing investments in support of climate change mitigation, increasing investments in support of energy transition, um, research and development, um, new technologies being put to use to reduce emissions across a number of different industries. Many of these new technologies are yet to be fully um, developed for, for business. So you have, you have this phase when you are practice or trying out new techniques and what have you, that in and of itself could lead to dispute. So I think we will see an increase of climate change related uh, issues in international dispute, disputes at large. Um, and that's not because these are more prone to disputes, that's because the sheer size of all of these uh, business transactions will increase and that's why they will also be more present in international disputes because whatever happens in international disputes obviously is just just a mere reflection on what happens in society at large so that's the trend i i hope we will see because it will mean that the necessary transition in society is happening and that is happening at a scale that we need to see 
to meet the Paris Agreement targets. Sure, sure. And I think that that whether you're a lawyer or you know um, or any other profession around the world, um, these are just things that people have to have some accountability over, and that then it's to be some sort of tangible action. It's not really sufficient anymore to act like we have a lot of time because we don't <laughs> um, to, to to try and take care of the planet. And that's another element of it right now that uh, we that needs to be taken into the equation. The time issue, time is of the essence. So um, that might might lead to dispute resolution being conducted in also a slightly different way because of the fact that we don't have time. Maybe we will see more mediations because we just need to resolve this faster, uh, where mediation otherwise would have resulted in arbitration. But when, when you now have this sort of deadline, if you want to call it that, hanging over your head, because for the sake of all of us, we need to get this resolved to get this, for example, this technique working or this project finalized or what have you. So there will be maybe other forms of dispute resolution also being used to a larger extent than we would otherwise have seen had we not had this time constraint, if you want to call it that. Yeah, sure. Okay, well, like whenever I ask folks to, to prognosticate or peer into the future, um, we always will say, fine, we'll come back in a, a decade and we'll do an update, update and see <laughs> uh, how it bored out. Um, and I hope I have okay. good news then in a decade. Exactly, exactly. If we're not, you know, doing a Tales of the Tribunal from Space by then or something, who knows? Um, <laughs> um, shifting topics just a bit. Um, you know, over the career points that we've talked about from your inception to where you are now, have there been any any mentors or guiding forces or anything that have sort of shaped um, your c career trajectory? Um, anything that you can think of? There have been many in the sense that there have been many people that have believed in me and uh, given, gave me confidence at important times in my career or even before it could be called a career when I was very young and, you know, working while at university, whatever. Um, so there have been many people for sure. And I, when I, when I think about it, what's the common, common denominator is that people that you feel a strong respect for and that you believe in when they demonstrate that they believe in you, that's, mm. that's been decisive, I think. And there are, there have been many people and many occasions where that has happened. And for this, I'm very, very grateful. Sure. No, and I think that that's that's well said. And um, we've had other guests that have said that, you know, um, they're just uh, there are a lot of different sources of um, propulsion throughout their career um, that have guided them. So that, that's well said. Um, okay. Some rapid fire questions. Some ones that I think are a little uh, are pretty straightforward. Um, what are you reading right now? What's on your bookshelf? I'm reading Barack Obama's biography. And. Uh, okay. And then I'm reading um, in parallel. Is that uh, Dreams of My Father, or which which one are you uh, reading? The one that um, the one that he uh, published last year. The first uh, it is, it's the first biography. He will publish another one, I think. It was a gift from a former employee, uh, so that was very nice. Uh, <laughs> used to work at sure. the SEC. Um, and then um, I'm reading a lot of reports about you know, energy transition and, and uh, climate change dispute resolution or climate change litigation and all sorts of things of climate change and the law. And lots of reports out there. So, I'm, you know, taking 
everyone, uh, you know, reading a lot of that as well. Sure, sure. Doing the homework. Got it. <laughs> um, okay. Um, and how about music? What kind of music are you into? What are some? Who are some of your favorite artists? Wow, that's a difficult question. I listen to lots of different uh, music. Uh, I am. You know, during the pandemic, I, I've been working at home, obviously, and my teenager has been homeschooling. So he's been a few doors away from me on, this, on the upper floor of our house. And he's been listening to music when he's been studying. So I picked up a lot of music from him. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the, the music he's listening to. Um, but um, so it's, it's really anything. Um, is, it depends on the mood that I'm in. Uh, if I need to, um, yeah, it really depends on the mood. Uh, it could be rock. And when I was young and I still listen to a lot of Die Straits, Mark Knopfler is just, uh, I don't know, uh, um, phenomena, uh, obviously for me. Um, so that's a common denominator that I grew up with and is, and is still there. Um, yesterday on the radio, I happened to hear a, uh, a show or a program about Marian Faithful, and she's just brilliant. Uh, so that's awesome music. But I haven't listened to her for, in a while, but it just struck me. Well, I have to get back to my Marian Faithful music because that is really, really good. Um, this winter, I listened a lot to Beyonce and her live album from, um, what's it called now? Homecoming. Exactly. Yeah. I've been listening to Homecoming all winter and all spring um, endlessly. It was something about energy, I think, in that album that just um, was very, very inspiring. Um, so that's been in my head headphones a lot this winter. Sure. No, that, that's a great album. Um, she uh, took a lot of inspiration from the sort of events called Homecoming that go on at American colleges, but in particular, um, those that are historically black colleges and universities throughout uh, much of the country that were founded sort of during the Reconstruction era and therefore. Um, so that that's really it's a really great album. I love that album, too. That's why. Yeah. And the film is fantastic. And I can't remember. There were hundreds of people on the stage there. And just the, the sheer magnitude of that project um, was I, I really liked it. Yeah. Sure, sure. Um, Okay, no, that, that that's great. Um, you know, one thing that I think has been on the topic or the, the front of a lot of folks' minds during the lockdown and um, sort of maybe even coming out of it now as we're starting to do, what are some of the ways that you have maintained your sort of physical and mental health over this time period? Um, are there some things, that, some activities that you participate in that sort of keep you on balance? I have been fortunate, so I have a neighbor that has been doing Tabata in the park where we live. So okay. that's been brilliant. So we do that once a week. And when she started it about a year ago, uh, everyone was like, yes, we can get out of the house, <laughs> go to the park. Um, so that's one thing. And then I had another friend who's doing a similar thing in her garden. So I've been fortunate enough to have people around me that have been organizing exercise or uh, workouts in their outdoors during the pandemic. And we have done it all through winter as well, you know, when it was really snowing and cold and we were doing these workouts outdoors. It was brilliant. So that's one thing. And then I do a lot of walking, um, try to take a walk before I sit down in front of the computer every morning. Um, where we live, um, just enjoy, um, yeah, getting a good walk before I sit down. Um, I think I find that 
maintaining, you say, the mental health, for, for that to happen, you really need to be physical. You really need to, whether it's walking or biking or working out in any other way, swimming, but you just need to move your body. You need to move your body. You need to work up a sweat. That's, for me, that's absolutely vital. And it's the times when you feel that you have the least time to do it. That's when it's most important that you actually get yourself out and do it. That's when you know you need to put whatever you're doing down and get out there. Uh, and that's where you put all the stress out or whatever is blocking your thinking and you come back and makes all the difference. Yeah, no, I think that I think that's right. And um, that has become one of my joys um, during lockdown is I enjoy a good walk um, either at the beginning of the day, right after lunch, before dinner. Um, I'm known for just, ah, okay, um, I have a call that I don't have to be in front of the computer. I'm going to take, take it while I'm walking through the park or just stretching the legs. Yes, absolutely. That's perfect. Uh, no, I think that's that's a very good way to get in your daily exercise. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're coming to the end of our, our, our time together, um, Annette. But um, one of the last questions I have for you is if you were approached by a current student, a recent graduate, or maybe even someone looking to break into the field of international um, law and dispute resolution, uh, what advice would you give them to prepare? I don't know whether it's anything specific for international dispute resolution that I would not give anyone that are starting out their careers in any field, to be honest. I do think that one of the most important things for anyone when it comes to, um, again, where you spend your time during building your career or working, right? That's a lot of hours in a week or in a life to be philosophical about it so think about what are the what are you passionate about in terms of mission what kind of organization do you want to be in what do you want that organization to um, stand for and where do you want that organization to contribute sort of and, and you know what kind of work so look for that and and uh, who do you want to work with um, and you know look for where you can find that um, because it's again, it's important that you spend your your time and make your contributions and your skills and your expertise in a context where you think it matters. And so you find those find those organizations where you think it matters. Um, and it's important to also to identify the people and reach out to those people. If you know who they are or if you have found them, tell them I admire your organization or I'm interested in what you do. I want you know I want to work with you. Not, don't be shy. Raise your hand. No, that, that's true. Um, there's a lot of uh, inertia and energy from just showing your interest and just showing up, you know? Exactly. Exactly. You have to start by showing up. Yeah. Um, it's 5 p.m. on a Friday. You have, it's no COVID. You can do whatever you'd like. How are you going to spend your weekend? I am going to um, have some friends over for and after work or maybe a barbecue in the garden if it's a summer. Um, and then I'm going to try to get a good workout sometime during the weekend. I might play a game of tennis with my husband. Um, if it's in the summer, we play outdoors. Uh, or uh, we could play a game of golf, the entire family. That would be ideal. Yeah. Okay. That sounds like a good weekend. Um, as we wrap up here today, Annette, do you have any shout outs that you would like to give? Yes, I would, would like to give a shout out to my partners, to Anja Ip and Andrina Selgren, who are 
my partners in crime for this new uh, adventure, Climate, Climate Change Council. Um, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to be three people doing this together. And we, like I said, we combine skills and expertise, but we also complement each other with other experiences, which is really, um, it's a lot of fun. So that's my shout out to Anja and Andrina. Okay, yeah, and we'll have to tag them in uh, when the show posts and we get a tip of the cap and a shout out to them. Um, other than that, um, Annette, unfortunately, our time together has come to an end. We thank you so much for stopping by the show um, and thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Chris. It's been really good talking to you. Well, great. Well, Annette, you want to sign us off? For sure. I am Annette Magnusson, and there is no disputing it, and you are listening to The Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you, and we will see y'all next time. So, that was my conversation with Annette Magnusson. Her story, especially over the last year or so, is truly a profile in courage, innovation, and purpose and it's exciting to see what she and her colleagues will do next. I have no doubt that it'll be something interesting, important, and critically, will have a positive impact on the environment. Don't forget to tune in tomorrow for our special edition of Disputes Digest, brought to you with the support of London VF and Juice Mundi. I think this series is going to be something that you'll really enjoy and learn a lot from. Also, one more question before we get out of here, and feel free to comment your answer on LinkedIn, to drop me a message or an email. We're thinking of doing some TOT swag and or merchandise. What would you like to see? T-shirts, mugs, hats, water bottles, power banks? Y'all let me know. It's something we've been wanting to do for a while and I'd be curious to hear what Team TOT has to say. We're not gonna make any decisions right now, but definitely looking at it in the near future. Finally, we'd love to hear from you. Don't hesitate to drop us a line on LinkedIn or by visiting the website. And if you've got a moment to leave us a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice. Tales of the Tribunal is produced by Mo Better Solutions and show music is done by Joshua and Jaden Campbell, who had a birthday this week and I'm wishing a happy birthday to in this podcast for when they listen to it or if you see them on social media. Happy birthday, guys. Show interns are Matthew Cothran and Ramatulahi Jalo. Feedback and comments for the show can be sent to talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. That's it for this week. And don't forget, there's no disputing it. You're listening to Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as a legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.